Hello, I'm Penny Haslam. I'm the host of Brexit Ready, a new series of podcasts discussing the challenges and opportunities for SMEs in the new economic landscape. The UK has, of course, left the EU now, and the transition period has ended, meaning new rules are in place for all businesses based in the UK. With COVID still the most pressing issue for many businesses, devoting time and resource to fully understanding the changes across all areas can be a challenge. This mini-series for Hertfordshire Growth Hub, powered by Hertfordshire Local Enterprise Partnership, will help businesses to navigate their way through the complexities of the transition process. In each of the episodes, we'll feature an SME business owner with an expert or two, who hopefully will be able to shed light on these areas. Today, we're talking about VAT. No, not vodka and tonic, but value-added tax. Now, in theory, VAT should be simple. (laughs) But as of the 1st of January 2021, the UK government changed how it collects VAT and other import duties on all overseas goods. And if you're exporting goods to countries within the EU, you might need to register for VAT in every country you export to. So, how different does VAT look since Brexit? How is it affecting small businesses? And what can we do to tackle the issues it presents? To discuss these questions and hopefully get some answers for you and your business, I'm joined by Jason Croke, who's the VAT Director with Rayner Essex, Ruth Corkin, Director of Indirect Tax at Hillier Hopkins, and Laura Rudo, founder of the Evolve Organic Beauty Company. So Jason, tell us about your history and the work that you do with VAT. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been working in the field of VAT for about 24 years now. I love the fact that VAT is constantly changing and moving. You know, not, not one week goes by without something that you have to read up on and naturally a problem solver always have been. And VAT brings quite a lot of uh, a lot of problems for for businesses. And uh, I just love finding practical solutions. I think the fact that you love that it changes all the time is the uh, opposite of what most business owners enjoy about VAT. Uh, It is a changing beast and it has massively moved since Brexit. I'm glad you're on board with your passion for VAT, Jason. Thank you. And Ruth, you, you work with small businesses now, don't you? But you've had a long history with VAT. Tell us about yourself. I have. I mean, I, I left school and I actually started life as a, a laboratory technician um, studying chemistry and found that chemistry wasn't the right subject for me. So I jumped ship and joined HM Revenue and Customs, although it was customs and excise in those days, and trained in VAT at that point. And alongside of that, I've worked in customs duty for most of that time as well. So the two go hand in hand. And I've, I've spent the last six months trying to look at supply chains, people's VAT registration issues, customs duty issues, the whole lot, and also trying to get goods actually physically across the border. Great. Well, it sounds like you have some solutions up your sleeves for the problems we're going to be discussing. Hopefully, we'll be getting some answers for the businesses listening. And the business in the room, Laura Rudo, founder of Evolve. Organic Beauty. Do you love the way that VAT just changes all the time? How's it going for you? But <laughs> tell us about your business as well. I'm Laura Ruda. I'm the founder of Evolve Organic Beauty, and we are a manufacturer of certified organic and sustainable beauty products based in Hertfordshire in the UK. And we have a wholesale business and an online business. So our wholesale business exports about 60% of what we produce to Europe, as well as to other places around the world. 
And then we also have an online business. And although that's primarily UK-based, we do have some international customers. So whilst we were when we were preparing for Brexit, we were trying to work out the best operating model going forward. And we did take quite a lot of legal advice about it from some tax experts. And we identified that there were really two models that we could follow going forward. We could either continue to ship from the UK, and the disadvantage of that would be that it would mean our customers would have to pay import VAT on the goods when they arrived in Europe, um, or we could establish a warehouse inside the European Union. We decided in the first instance to try the first model because it's much similar to our current operating model. But what we were surprised about was the level of additional charges and fees that were imposed on those customers. So, for example, on a £100 order of cosmetics, we had reports from customers in January that as well as paying the extra 20% or so import VAT, they were being charged a disbursement fee, which was also around £20. So um, on a £100 order, they might be paying an extra £40 in taxes and charges. And most of our customers just said, look, this is unworkable. Lots of customers sent their orders back in January, but we found that the um, you know just the complexity of understanding all of that was not something that we had sort of fully appreciated before Brexit. And even now, just trying to understand how to find that information is really, really tricky. I hope our experts can help you as well as helping all of our listeners too. The Board of Trade report recently said that companies that export do better, they pay their staff more. It's good for business, it's good for the economy. Um, but with all these problems, I wonder how appealing it is to businesses. What are the problems, broadly speaking? Um, Jason, if I can come to you first, what's the difference between now and then, before Brexit? What are the main differences in VAT? I mean, import and export procedures have always existed. You know, terminology that is, you know, people are trying to get to grips with today, like INCO terms and commodity codes and, and even tariffs. Um, they've always existed, but um, it's probably been underestimated just how many businesses in the UK and in fact the EU have actually just traded with each other and not really traded beyond, you know, the, the traditional sort of border. And, and so what we're finding is the difference between now and sort of pre-Brexit uh, post-Brexit, is that uh, all of these procedures that have always existed, but half business, half the businesses didn't need to concern themselves with, now they do. Businesses got so used to moving goods easily around the EU, not really having to worry about VAT registration because somebody else accounted for the VAT at the other end, um, that it's come as quite a shock, even though they may have imported or exported across the globe. It's, it's taken them a little bit of time to, to extrapolate the rules that they're used to for the rest of the world into the European sort of arena. And for those that have never done anything outside of Europe, it has come as a huge shock. Paint the picture for us, Laura, about how life was pre-Brexit for Evolve Organic Beauty. Absolutely. So we were sending products to wholesalers and distributors via DHL. And we were also sending products directly to online customers. Most of our online customers are in the UK, but we do have some international customers. And we're also working with DHL using their economy services. We didn't have any problems clearing customs because everything was, most of what we were sending was in within the EU. Basically, we just did our VAT returns in the UK and we didn't have any particular issues with anything. Jason, talk us through 
the the difficult subject of the rules of origin and how is that catching people out? So if you take the example of, I don't know, some material that you just import from Lithuania into the UK, just like a you know big, big roll of it. It depends then what we do with it in the UK. So if we turn that that material into some sort of garments or clothing, you know, for children and adults, then effectively we've changed it. So it came in as a piece of material from you know, Lithuania or, or India, and then we've changed it into something else, a blouse or a coat or whatever. And so the rules of origin can actually then change. So instead of it now being of Indian silk or Lithuanian cotton or something, it now becomes a cotton blouse, which can be sold in a, in a, in a shop in the UK. So you have these sorts of weird scenarios. So, you know, I've got a client that they have they have some just you know, manufacturing stuff, but they have products made in China. It goes to their hair sort of head office, uh, sort of corporate entity in the Netherlands. Uh, so spare parts for like machines, but then they ship them to the UK, or they used to. <laughs> they used to keep a, a large stock of the U- stock here in the UK, and that would serve both the UK customers and also EU customers. The goods coming in are made from China, so they go from China into Netherlands, so it incurs import duty there because those goods have come from somewhere not within the EU because you know, China's not in the EU. Uh, so import duty is incurred there. Then when they ship those goods from the Netherlands into the UK, the origin is still China because the Netherlands haven't done anything with it. So effectively, when they come into the UK, customs here will look at it and go, all right, we see these things are from China. So it gets hit with another import duty. <laughs> so the, the, the takeaway is, is that rules of origin are, are critical, especially for businesses that are buying materials from one place processing them somewhere else, doing something else to them, and then sending them somewhere else. So businesses need to look at their supply chain and just break it down into little chunks and go, where's it coming from? Where's the pressure points? There's nothing here that's not impossible, but it does require effort. Laura, you mentioned that some of your products were getting stuck at ports. Can you describe a little bit more about that setting? Yeah, so what we found is that depending on the carrier that we use, the um, situation is a little bit different. So DHL have their own specific customs lines, it seems, or a way of clearing things through more quickly. But when we've had to use pallet services, they were getting really stuck. So we're talking sort of weeks and even months in some cases. And of course, the problem we then have is that our customers can't sell the products. They're out of stock of the products. And that means that they're losing sales, which means they won't reorder from us. And they also won't pay us on time for those goods. So we've already shipped them. But we are then having to say to them, oh, well, they haven't arrived. So, okay, we'll give you an extra sort of 30 days or something on the end of your invoice. So it's bad for them and it's bad for us and everyone's sort of getting frustrated. So in the short term, we've actually stopped using pallet services completely. We will hopefully be able to revert to pallets once the delays have eased off a little bit. Ruth, does that sound familiar? Have you got customers with stuff at ports waiting to go places? Yes, and I, I, I kind of know where the rub is on all of that. So DHL does have its own customs clearance. It's called a community service provider, which it uses for all of its movements. But if you're using any of the other ports and any of the carriers, they have to go through separate community service providers. And the problem I found, and the one instance where one of my clients got their goods stuck, and this was coming in rather than going out, was that the all of the software wasn't dovetailing properly. So you have your own software, but that's provided by a third party. That has to dovetail with the community service provider because it's being moved through a port as a container and has to be tracked. It then 
also has to dovetail with certainly coming in with the ferry operator or the vessel operator who has to then tell the community service provider that the goods have arrived. And then you've also got the customs declaration software the other side of the channel. So in my instance, there was something going wrong between all the different software and it ended up with a client container being stuck in the port for a week. Origin catches people out loads. And, and even within the EU, if you don't have, and this is what I'm finding now, if you don't have the statement of the origin of those goods or components in, in your invoice or on your invoice or on your paperwork, your declaration will be rejected. And that's where the holdups start. Jason, what are the problems with the freight agents? What are they and, and why might there be a, a challenge there? The freight agent is often instructed by the seller or the supplier. And what happens then is the information that the freight agent needs really needs to be supplied by the from the seller's side of things. And so when those pieces of information are missing, like the rules of origin, like the, you know, the INCO terms or the, the uh, you know, who's going to pay the VATA or the import duty at the other end. When those things are missing, that's some of the things that causes the holds up. I've got clients that had, they were sending some books. So these are good old fashioned readable books uh, into a major wholesaler in, in Ireland. And that got stopped at, uh, at the Irish uh, customs. Uh, they were trying to apply VAT to them for a start, which they shouldn't do because there's no VAT on books. But there was also some duty charges, which just appeared out of nowhere because of rules of origin because the books are actually printed in the UK, so they should have been duty-free. What problems have you found around businesses dealing with the concept of establishment? And what is that? Just describe what that is. So establishment deems um, where you are carrying out a business. So you can have two types of establishment. You can have a permanent establishment, which is where you do your day-to-day business from. So in Laura's case, that would be in Hertfordshire. And you can have a fixed establishment, which is where you conduct some business from, and it's probably in another European country, for instance. The problem that my clients are finding is that the definition of establishment from a customs point of view is different to that for a VAT point of view. So it's quite easy to trade and be VAT registered and not have an establishment in the EU, but you can't do any customs declarations and pay tariffs easily if you have no establishment in the EU. What sort of conditions do governments apply to that? Is it you have to have banking in that country, rely on services, outsource within that country? That sort of caveat. What what makes an establishment true? So looking at it from a customs perspective, you have to have a registered entity, business company out there. So a Lithuanian um, company in the company register. From a UK customs perspective, we, we actually also say, a company registered with company's house. For a VAT perspective, that's not enough. So they need to have a hybrid of the two. So I normally say to my clients, if you need an establishment, please make sure you have someone in the country who is able to conclude contracts for you, whether it's purchase or sales contracts, because that gives you that degree of permanency. And as the word would, you know, you're established there, you have your establishment. And for regulatory purposes, you probably do need someone there on the ground because if something goes wrong, they need someone to come back to. So I found it with electrical products. A client who imports electrical products didn't have a UK director or UK nominated person. So they had to pretty quickly do that whole sort of registering a branch, making sure there was a, a UK person responsible because the, um, the shipping agent just said, we're not going to ship anything if you don't. 
Jason, the funny thing is it all depends, doesn't it, with VAT? But how can small businesses overcome these issues? I mean, you know, there's no one size fits all. I mean, I've got a client that, you know, they were saying, well, we don't want to get involved in, they were selling to consumers via their website. And, and they were saying, well, it's worth about six to 8,000 sales a year. And they're saying it's quite small for what we do. So, you know, we've explored all the options and they were lost like, yeah, we're just not going to sell. So we're just going to put on our website, you know, we only, we only dispatch goods to UK customers, effectively blocking out, blocking out the EU market. But conversely, as we've heard about Laura, you know, uh, where you've got 60% of your business comes from consumers in the EU, then, you know, you have to then explore all the ways possible at that cost, of course, it does cost money, but then to get you into position where you are, where you can carry on doing your business. You know, businesses should have a, a two or three stage strategy, which is, you know, what can I do now immediately just to keep, you know, to keep the lights on, so to speak, you know, so yes, you're going to have to pay freight agent fees. You're probably going to have to absorb some costs here or there at duty. And like Laura was paying the, you know, paying the costs so that the customer at the other end didn't have to do it. Can't do that forever. That's not sustainable. So then you need a second or a third stage where you go, right, what can we do in the next 12 months? And then, and then eventually the final stage is you have a, solution or it could just be you just decided you don't want to sell we, we've seen in the we've seen in the in the media again uh, a lot of eu businesses just deciding they don't want to sell to the uk anymore because they don't want the cost of having to register for that here um, or even have to deal with you know the complexities of it and, and to seek advice whether that's you know free on a, a chat forum uh, or you know by you know using search engines to you know punching punching in your question are you finding at all that postponed accounting is helping there's a lot of confusion between deferred VAT and postponed VAT, even though they sound like they're the same. So you don't actually have to sign up for postponed VAT accounting. It is a right given in law to every business to use. You tell your freight forwarder you want to use postponed VAT accounting. You don't pay VAT when the goods come into the country. You put the, put the VAT on your VAT return. And for people who've been used to dealing with the EU, for all this time, will have done that previously under what we used to call acquisition VAT. The difference is that postponed VAT goes through different boxes on the VAT return, but it works in the same principle. You effectively charge yourself the VAT on one side and you claim it back on the other. So there's no VAT paid. And then you just put the net value of your goods on the VAT return as a purchase. All of the big accountancy packages have all got those codes set up so that these um, accounting software will calculate that for you. So there's actually not a lot of thinking around it. If you choose not to use postponed VAT accounting, you can use a deferment account, which will defer your VAT and your customs duty for a period of up to six weeks. You pay it all off like you do your credit card with a direct debit, but it just means you can clear the goods faster. But you do have to apply for that. Either have to apply for a, a waiver of a guarantee or provide a guarantee for any amounts that you might be deferring. And that's what puts a lot of people off. If you don't go for that, then you get charged VAT at the point your goods enter and you get a pretty certificate called a C79, which you use to claim back the VAT on your VAT return. But you may import in January and not do your VAT return until March or April time. So you've got to fund that VAT for three months until you can get it back. So postponed VAT accounting was introduced for all imports to make that whole bit at the port much easier to do. 
The problem is that freight forwarders are not routinely ticking the box to say it's going to be postponed VAT accounting and you physically have to instruct your freight forwarder that's what you want to do. And I suppose with all of this, we do have to accept that it is a change for business and therefore will have teething problems associated with it. Patience needs to bear out and we will get through this sort of thing. Um, What are the key dates for small businesses to think about or look at in terms of VAT over the coming months now that Brexit is a reality? Ruth, what's happening in April, on the 1st of April? The 1st of April um, changes, which are mainly around food and animal products and or feedstuffs not of animal origin, have now been moved back to October, January and April next year. The next change, I think, for a lot of businesses are the ones that may have bought their goods in under what's called entry and declarance records. So basically, you tell customs that you are going to record the details in your books and records, and then you make a declaration up to six months down the line. And the next thing is that the 1st of July will be the first of those ones coming through. And you have to make sure you've done that declaration so that you can make sure that you've accounted for duty and things like that. Otherwise, you could start get penalties and things like that. So if you've used a freight agent, you probably need to prod them and say, did you do a full declaration or did you do entry and declarance records or a simplified declaration just so that you know? You should have accounted under postponed VAT accounting for the VAT at that point on an estimate basis. When you do your full declaration, your statement will be generated and you just need to make sure that what you declared in, say, January matches what has been spat out by the computer in July. If you haven't used postponed VAT accounting and you've opted for the entry and declarance records, you will find that the VAT and duty, if it's due, will, well, certainly the duty, if it's due, the VAT certainly will, will hit your deferment account after the 1st of July. And then you you may have an unexpected VAT bill in the middle of August that you perhaps weren't, you know, sort of expecting to have. And then your statement is generated at a point and you put it on the VAT return then. And Jason, the online marketplace situation, there are changes happening in July there, aren't there? So in July, the EU introduced a number of schemes, one of which is called the Import One Stop Shop. It's optional, but the aim behind it is for non-EU businesses selling goods that are not in the EU at the time. So perfect example, UK business selling goods to consumers in the EU, you know, buyer online or whatever. So from the 1st of July, there's an optional scheme that allows a non-EU business to charge domestic VAT. So, you know, you charge French VAT to French customers, Italian VAT to Italian customers. Uh, It's meant to be as a simplification, but it is optional. At the same time, there's some other introduction of another scheme called one-stop shop. So we have import, one-stop shop, and then one-stop shop. And one-stop shop is, is not getting too complicated, pr- primarily to do with EU businesses. So if you're a UK business and you've got some stock held in a warehouse, you know, like through Amazon, for example, then there's, there'll be a requirement either to register for that in the country where that warehouse is, uh, or again, you can use a one-stop shop. Watch this space. I mean, the uh, the guidance has been sort of published back in October, but there's some more due. You can't register for it until April. So when that guidance is sort of refined and and issued, then then it'll be more interesting. But but it's just more of a heads up for now. Do you anticipate a lot of small, really micro business, you know, kitchen table marketplace business will get caught out 
um, if they're not fully apprised of the situation, you know, selling through the Amazons and the Etsy's and they're not on the high streets of the world? Yes, certainly. I mean, selling through the online marketplaces, you know, both EU and UK legislation sort of puts the onus on the marketplace themselves. So if a a trader is operating on those uh, platforms and they haven't got a VAT registration, the platform itself will then charge VAT and then declare that to the relevant tax authority. So either way, uh, VAT's going to get charged, which is ultimately the aim of this because, you know, previously there'd be non-EU businesses selling on these platforms, undercutting local businesses. You know, why why go to a local shop to purchase, you know, I don't know, a phone cover when you can get it from, you know, from China, you know, for half the price. So, so, so that's what it's trying to achieve. So in a way, it's actually quite good. It's meant to protect businesses within the EU specifically, but you know, the UK as well. Um, but yes, it just adds another layer of complexity for, for businesses wherever they are in the world. I mean, there's, there is a threshold as well that you have to sort of carve out as well. So going back to the import one-stop shop, if your goods, if the consignment is valued at, 100 and, at less than 150 euros, then you can use the import one-stop shop if it's over that my reading of it is you have to register wherever you've got customers. And that pretty much mirrors what we've got here as well. So even with online marketplaces, if you bring the goods in from outside the UK, it's under £135. The online marketplace deals with the VAT. If it's over that, you have to register as a seller. If you've got stock in the UK, the online marketplace is responsible for the VAT regardless of the value. So you've almost got to salami slice what you're doing and work out which of the buckets it goes in and where you need to register. So I think it it will be a simplification, certainly on the EU side, by comparison to what we have now, which is basically registration in every single country you do business in, because the threshold for that is £20 worth of goods and not the €150 that everyone thinks it is. And it will make the marketplaces much more accountable for what their sellers are doing. How enforceable it is, is a different matter. So just finally, from each of you, a final word to lift the spirits of the business world and mine and Laura's. How long are we talking to to feel like this is under control and we know what we're doing? Laura, what's your anticipation there? I think that once we're able to get our European warehouse set up and all of our VAT registration set up, which I'm hoping is going to happen in the next six weeks or so, is about normally about a 50-day wait to get a German registration. So once we get that sorted and we can start shipping to all of our customers across the world again, then I think we'll be feeling a lot happier about things. But I don't think that will be the very end of the VAT complexity, given everything I've heard on this podcast today. There is a lot of help out there and we've had lots of help from the DIT, lots of help from DHL and lots of help from helpful accountants and VAT experts. So make sure that you use it. I mean, I'm optimistic. I think whether by, I know, proactive design or retrospective reactivity, I think businesses will get this right in the longer term, probably 12, 18 months. Um, And at the same time, I think freight agents, they'll find their stride and EU suppliers, they'll, they'll start to learn. Uh, about the rules as well and and they'll start to fit in and I think everything the jigsaw will come together I think. Yeah I'm cautiously optimistic as well I mean the trade and cooperation agreement allows for businesses to be very involved in the committees that are being set up so I mean I you know if you want to have your say please get involved because if you stay silent HMRC, DTI or DIT, the EU commission none of them know 
what the problems are if people don't tell them. And I can tell them till I'm blue in the face and Jason can as well. And they might just think, oh, it's those two noisy beggars. So businesses need to be involved in the process, uh, either through their trade bodies or their professional advisors or whatever, and make their voice heard. And I think they will come out the other side and think, I'm glad that's over, but at least I know what I'm doing now. Thank you all so much. Big thanks to our guests, Jason Croak, VAT Director with Rainer Essex, Ruth Corkin, Director of Indirect Tax at Hillier Hopkins, and Laura Rudo, founder of Evolve Organic Beauty. And I must say, Laura, when I was researching for the podcast, I did end up buying a serum from your website. So I'll wait to see if I get charged VAT on that when it arrives through the door, whether it arrives at all off the freight, you know, who knows? I'm joking. It will be lovely. If any of the issues raised in our discussion today have got you thinking about what you might need to do next, the Growth Hub can help. Growth account managers help you work through the issues that might affect your business and help you to navigate the support available. They can signpost you to specialist support, including live and on-demand webinars and videos, as well as help you to access a host of fully funded support programs. Visit heartsgrowthhub.com and register for free today. And don't forget to subscribe to the Brexit Ready podcast on your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. We'd love it if you left a review. It really makes the podcast easier for others to find. Brexit Ready is a Fresh Air production. I'm Penny Haslam. Thanks for listening.